Welcome to the Oxford NC Exchange, a podcast dedicated to providing Oxford-related media for Oxford, North Carolina. In this episode, we are at the Oxford Oaks Distillery, meeting with Paul Shelton, one of the distillery's founding partners, with Pierre Jing, who oversees the business side of Oxford Oaks, and with Matthew McLean, the master distiller of Oxford Oaks. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Oxford NC Exchange, the podcast that is dedicated to Oxford Media for Oxford, North Carolina. Uh, and this afternoon, we are at Vertigree Restaurant at Oxford Oaks Distillery. And uh, I know many of you will be familiar with that. You'll have sat here and eaten the wonderful food. Uh, this afternoon, we are talking about the product that is made within these walls. Um, in particular, those spirits that uh, are just beginning to roll off uh, the Oxford Oak Distillery production line. Um, and we are here with Paul, Matthew, and Pierre. Um, as always, uh, uh, Adam uh, Light and myself, Alan Kennecke, are your hosts. Uh, to start, we're going to let these gentlemen introduce themselves to you. Paul Shelton. Good afternoon. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you guys for coming by. I've been in Oxford since 2001, so I'm fairly new here. Uh, Adam is the only one that, in this group that's been here longer than I. Uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur and um, just love having the ideas and then seeing them come to fruition. That's where my strength is. Matthew. <clears throat> my name is Matthew McLean. Uh, I do live in Oxford proper. I've been here just shy of a year. Uh, and the distillery is what brought me to Oxford, um, specifically. And Pierre. Good afternoon. I'm, uh, we were just talking, I think I'm your first repeat offender guest on the <laughs> podcast, so yes. thank you for having me back on. Apparently, I didn't mess it up too bad last time. Um, I am uh, similar to Paul. I've not been here uh, quite as long, but serial entrepreneur, involved in a lot of projects in downtown. I um, got involved in this project, in particular on the real estate side, and uh, currently serve as chief revenue officer, um, basically in charge of all things that we can sell. So distillery, restaurant, merchandising, um, those items are sort of my focus. Go ahead. Wonderful. Uh, for, each you guys, for each of you guys, what's your fav absolute favorite thing to do in Oxford? Work. <laughs> <laughs> We're sorry about that, Cheryl. <laughs> um, I, I really like the wide variety of outdoor activities that are available to us in the area. Man, there's so much to choose from. I, I mean, I, I just really enjoy being downtown. Uh, shopping's great. Um, bunch of great places to eat, places to just connect with people. So just generally being in the community downtown. What about you, Adam? What's your favorite thing to do in Oxford? Well, honestly, it's I guess it's just randomly running into people that you that you have at least some prior connection to and also meeting new people. Um, every now and then you'll see somebody and you're like, oh, I haven't seen that person in a few months or weeks or whatever, or they went to Texas or they went to this trip or that trip. And it's just this I don't know, call it camaraderie or something where it's like, you know, you never, you never really quite lose touch people when you live in Oxford. There's just something kind of always going on and on. So how about yourself, Alan? 
Oh, what is my favorite thing to do? You know, besides sitting out at those people and uh, giving them a sermon and hopefully making them feel very guilty. No. Um, I'm like you, Adam. I just love running into people uh, that I know here. Uh, I love meeting new friends. Uh, this is just a personable and friendly town. And uh, hopefully it will continue along those lines uh, that uh, the friendships will um, increase um, that people that don't know one another will get to know one another, um, and that uh, more people will know, here's how wonderful Oxford, North Carolina is, the people that live in it, that they would know, you're in a great place. All right, questions for Pierre, are you going first? Man, it depends on what question you ask. All right, okay. <laughs> um, where do we want to start, Adam, with these questions? Pierre's questions, Matthew's questions, Paul's questions. We can certainly go with Pierre's questions first, but I think maybe a good place to start is, what makes Oxford Oaks Distillery unique? Oh man. Mm. You wanna take that one? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I, I think there's a lot of stuff to point to. I think obviously it's, uh, you know, the first uh, legal distillery in Granville County makes it unique. Um, the fact that it's in a building that was completely renovated, um, that's, you know, 100 plus years old is unique. Um, I think the idea that it's got public facing pieces like, um, you know, the restaurant and special events, but also has a, sort of a commercial production component where we're, you know, getting the word out into other markets. And, and you know, it's it's interesting because it serves so many purposes as a you know, a landmark in the community, but also a destination for tourism. So, you know, I think there's a lot about this project that, that is unique. So, I mean, I wouldn't point to one single thing, but I think you've got at least a dozen different things that make this project really cool. Anybody else want to add to that? Paul? We've got uh, basically a, an eclectic group of partners from very different backgrounds, but we work incredibly well as a team. And it's been a lot of fun to work with the partners and work with the team that's here at the distillery and the restaurant. Uh, it brings a lot of joy to me because it's, it's a sense of building community that you don't get very many places. I think it, was a, it goes back a lot to what Adam was saying, that it's fun, and you as well, it's fun to walk down the street and see somebody you know and stop and chat. You want to add, add anything to that, Matthew? I, I fully agree with Paul. Uh, the cohesiveness of the founders group and the, our employees, absolutely incredible to work with and be around. Okay. We'll start with Matthew. Um, what's your personal history with liquor and spirits? <clears throat> you know, and when did you know, this is what I want to do? <laughs> Good question, very good question. So first of all, I'm a fourth generation master distiller. So my grandfather and my great grandfather distilled on the Isle of Mole off the west coast of Scotland. Yes. Um, when I was growing up and some of my first professional training, I was able to use and utilize some of the same equipment that my grandfather and great grandfather did, the exact same equipment. Nothing had changed. Um, I believe that I started uh, my very first batch of beer when I was nine years old uh, progressed into wine. By the time I was 11, I was entering wine contests 
all around Oregon, the state of Oregon on the West Coast. Uh, I believe when I was 13, 12 or 13, was when I made my first batch of liquor, and I never looked back. So, been making liquor ever since. Got an early start, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Paul? Um, what got you interested in spirits? In 2005, uh, we had a family meeting. Um, only about 5% of the people in the world are planners. I'm a planner. So we were talking about where we go next. And it was decided at that meeting that we would do either a brewery or a distillery. Distilleries were not even legal in North Carolina at that time. My son and his wife and Pierre and Chris, two of our partners currently, built and opened a brewery in 2018. Eight. Eight, mm -hmm. 18? 18, yep. Right? And um, while I had a business plan for a distillery in 2013, uh, there were various things that went on that and good reasons why it was not pursued at that time. But then we got together, uh, Peter Johnson, uh, who's a retired plastic surgeon, and I got together and we started talking about it more seriously and then drew in Chris and Pierre. Um, they weren't excited about it to start with, but, but it grew on them. We warmed up to it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Kathy and Phil Dixon came in, but... Uh, it's been a dream of ours um, for almost 20 years, and now it's come to fruition, and Matthew is starting to, to run some mash, and we're fermenting it, and we're distilling it, trying to, to tweak the equipment so that it all works properly. So hopefully we'll run our first real batch Friday. Right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> we, we've actually yes. run. We've actually run a real batch. Uh, this, I'm working on the second batch right now, um, and we'll do a third batch on Friday. Okay. So, but we're basically the first couple of batches are working just to, out all the kinks in the system. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's why I said the first real batch is, yep. is will we'll come because we know where the kinks are in the system and we can account. That's right. Absolutely. Right. Uh, so, gentlemen, what defines a micro distillery? And are you better able to uh, to meet customers' needs and you know adapt with you know with being the size you are and everything and and you know. So there's there's several definitions okay. of what is considered a micro distillery. One of the uh, definitions from an economic standpoint is a distillery that produces less than a hundred thousand cases of liquor a, a year. Uh, we definitely at this point produce less than 100,000 cases of liquor a year. That's a low risk, yep. Very, risk. very. Um, the other thing that defines a micro distillery is the size, basically the amount uh, that we can do in that distillery in any given year. The nice thing about a micro distillery is that we can concentrate on high quality ingredients. The, we, we use nothing but the best ingredients here. Um, I can completely focus on the craft of distilling. So meaning I can watch it all the way from grain. I go and visit the farmers out in the fields. I, I supervise and, and, and um, consult on the grinding of those grains. Uh, 
I personally handle every single grain that goes into our equipment. Um, and, and there's nothing like that personal oversight when you're making a, a premium product, which is everything that we do here is considered a premium product. Um, nothing but the best and the best quality. And if it doesn't meet those standards, we will not put it out. Right. I think the distinction that Matt used between craft and micro is probably an important distinction to emphasize because if you think about, to Paul's point, breweries happened way before, sort of a decade before, right, all of this uh, in distilling. Mm -hmm. Micro is sort of a you're not going to get away from it. Like there's just no way to produce enough to break out of that category. So then you have distilleries that are focused on just creating some product as cheap as they can to get it in the market. They're still micro, but ours is craft. And I think the distinction of craft distillery is all the things that he uh, associated with the brand. So it happens in breweries too. You hear about microbreweries and craft breweries, and I think people recognize you know the subtle difference between those. But I think for us, it's it's Matt's point: having your hands you know in the in the grain with the farmers and sourcing things locally, and then just making sure that you have the best product available and, and as you know we're talking about the distillery but if you think about the restaurant that's what we've done is is really 100%. hands on the, what is the best product if we're going to serve lamb it's going to be new zealand lamb if we're going to serve lobster it's going to be maine lobster so just trying to find the best products that you can you know to get out in front of the public and we right. have contracts with grain farmers here in granville county mm -hmm. uh, for corn and barley and um hopefully we'll have other contracts for rye uh, and wheat for our product. And, and Matthew will make sure that, that that grain that we get, whatever type of grain it may be, is going to be the very best that we can source locally. To, to use the industry parlance, you're aiming for the top shelf. 100%. Yes. All right. That's where it's going to go. <laughs> it's going to go right to the top shelf. Okay. Um, Curious, uh, you know, for those of us that, you know, we're not brewing beer in elementary school, you know, <laughs> you know, those of us that, you know, had not graduated to being distillers by middle school, um, what's involved in the production of spirits, you know, you know, with regards to ingredients, time, um, help educate us novices on that. So. I, I think that's a great question, first of all. People don't realize how much work goes into the bottles that they buy at their local ABC stores. And when he says work, he means work. Yeah. Um, so we start with grain. We can either dry all its, if, if we take corn for an example, the corn is dried and then ground. I take that ground corn and I put it into a special machine called a mash ton, T-U-N and add hot water and that is converting the starches in those grains into sugars i then separate that grain from that sugar water and put it over to a fermenter where we add yeast depending on the type of liquor that we are making that fermentation can run anywhere from 96 hours up to a week i then transfer that mild beer, anywhere from an 8 to a 12% beer, without any hops or without any ingredients, just a straight grain beer, and move that over to the fermenter. And the fermenter is where we actually separate the ethanol 
from the water. The distill. So the we still, right? we distill it in the yeah. yes in the still. That's yes. So <laughs> and and when you're distilling, you're separating yes. ethanol from from water. Yes. So uh, at which point we usually come out anywhere between 160 to 190 proof. Mm -hmm. And I'll add distilled water to cut it or proof it down to a drinking uh, quality. Right. Right. Then we bottle it and we have to label it and we have to cork it and we have to heat seal it. Um, on top of this, we have a lot of federal regulations. There's, there's three federal reports that are done on a regular basis. There's state reports that are done on a regular basis and there's inventory reports that are done on a regular basis. So we really do measure everything from grain to glass, which is part of our logo here at Oxford Oaks Distillery is grain to glass. So. So once you, how much time are we looking at to say, okay, if you're making a vodka that, okay, you have your ingredients and you start the process to the point where now so it's there on if, the shelf. If we were to start from scratch and produce a new liquor, a brand new vodka, it takes about six weeks altogether. If we were doing label design, getting everything together, getting all the right ingredients, getting the yeasts, doing the fermentation and mash-in, yeah, about six weeks altogether for a new product. Right now, I can turn around a vodka in about a week. Right. Right. The whiskeys are very different, though, aren't they, Matthew? So whiskeys, and we're going to be concentrating on bourbon here, or a, a Carolina whiskey is what I'm calling it, um, is bourbon by law has to be 51% corn, has to be aged in new American oak barrels for two years, and... Um, what am I missing? Made in the U.S. And made in uh, yep. brand new American white oak barrels. Uh, we are going to be doing some traditional bourbons, but we're also going to be aging a little bit longer. We're going to be doing some four-year bourbons that we call a barreled-in-bond bourbon. So made by one distillery, one distiller in one season, and then aged over four years hmm. in a bonded warehouse. Help me out with the nomenclature here, okay? You said bourbon and then you said North Carolina whiskey. I think many of us are familiar with, okay, well, here's the, the bourbon trail over in Kentucky. Here's, you know, the Tennessee whiskey of Jack Daniels. Um, what's a North Carolina whiskey? So North Carolina whiskey is a traditional bourbon mash bill. The only difference between our Carolina whiskey and bourbon is that I put our Carolina whiskey into used oak barrels. So they're what we consider first dump bourbon barrels, meaning they've been used for one batch of bourbon, dumped to be bottled by that particular distillery. Then I bought those barrels and I age our bourbon mash in those barrels. Our bourbon mash has been aged in two different barrels, at least the, the barrel aged whiskey that we're doing. Um, so we start off with one fresh dump bourbon barrel, and after a year we moved it to a second fresh dump bourbon barrel. Just polishes the whiskey, gives it a little more flavor. You're picking up a lot of vanillins and spice notes from those uh, first dump barrels. We're gonna be doing the same with our uh, rum, actually, too. We're going to be going into fresh dump uh, premium whiskey barrels. It's interesting, and most people don't know this, but a whiskey acquires 50 to 70% of its flavor from the barrel. The grain mash makes a difference. 
but the barrel really gives it more flavor than anything else. Not only flavor, but coloring as well. Most people don't realize that whiskey comes out of a still clear, known as white lightning. We put it in a barrel and it's that barrel aging that actually gives it the brown color and right. caramel notes that we taste in whiskeys. And you, you will get a lot of flavors from the barrel, caramel, vanilla, fruities, fruits, yep. spices, uh, and, and I'll use a grain as an example. Rye will, will create a spicy note in a whiskey, but the barrel can also do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Adam and I were looking at a calendar last month saying what in the world is going on in January in Oxford and there wasn't a whole lot going on um, and then we saw that January 11th is National Hot Toddy Day which was last Thursday um, so when would be the soonest somebody could come into the distillery and get their hot toddy <laughs> So you want our, our business hours? You're looking for? No, no, no. When, 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 when's this whiskey going to be available, this, this, this North Carolina so we, whiskey? We have an 86 proof uh, under the Oaks Carolina whiskey that's ready to drink right now. We right. also have two other versions. I have the double barrel strength at 116, so that means 116 proof, meaning that we withdrew it from the barrel, did not filter it, and threw it straight into a bottle. So that is barrel strength. We also have a double barrel aged 86 proof. So I did proof that one down to a more palatable uh, level for some people. Uh, they are incredible whiskeys. This is probably one of the better whiskeys I've ever produced in my life. Uh, wonderful, wonderful notes and flavors. It's, it's an incredible flavor profile. So I'm very, very happy with it. Adam, you've had a chance to taste them. What do you think? The whiskeys are, oh, mm -hmm. I, I the ones you did for our group the yeah the, well, we, we have a group we get together and, and hang out and sample some of these things and it's incredible and then also was this also some of the ones you did back in um the hot sauce festival that kind of rained out uh-huh and some of those were you had three that were kind of flavored a little mm -hmm. bit had a little extra flavor to them oh, so those were my spicy okay. so i did design some vodkas for so we have the north carolina hot sauce festival here in oxford every year uh, it's an incredible event, very well attended. Um, it's an amazing uh, event, actually. But what I did was I invented or designed three different uh, spicy vodkas. Uh, I did a, a Maruga Scorpion Pepper Vodka. I also did, being from Carolina, I had to do a Carolina Reaper Vodka. But I also did a Black Pepper Vodka. Um, and out of the three vodkas that we did, we've, we've actually continued with the black pepper vodka. It um, is surprisingly a wonderful vodka, uh, drank alone, but it also goes really good in some mixed drinks such as uh, Bloody Marys. We have a, uh, something we call a dirty blue martini here, uh, which is, which is a, a dirty martini with uh, blue cheese stuffed olives in it made with a black pepper vodka you know i'm not a big drinker myself i like to make it i like to watch people enjoy it this is one of my favorite martinis uh and it's really a go-to martini for me now and i think that we'll probably have limited edition uh reaper and uh, black pepper vodka vodka for the hot sauce festival but it's it's going to be in very limited quantities mm -hmm. well 
on the note of getting getting them out into the public and everything, have you entered any competitions or plan to do so? Are there competitions? Are there competitions with the spirits Alex? or festivals? Festivals. And such. So there's plenty of competitions and festivals for spirits. We will be entering into most of the North Carolina festivals that we possibly can. There's a couple. There's a handful of uh, national and international spirit competitions uh, that we will throw our hat in the ring for. Um, Probably not this quarter, but probably next quarter at some point. So, anything in North Carolina that, uh, if people are looking for something to do, they could go and and find the Oxford Oaks product, running up against you know other North Carolina whiskeys and the like. So we do have uh, three salespeople out there hitting the ABC stores locally. Uh, we've covered about 36 counties officially. We're in probably. 10 or so. Um, the way to get our product into the ABC stores is to go into those AB stores, ABC stores and ask for Oxford Oaks distillery products. If they don't carry it and you want it, they will bring it in for you. You've all heard that, so um, you can, are you in the local ABC store here? We are in both Granville County ABC stores. Okay, terrific, terrific, okay. So other people that are out there watching this and listening, you know what to do. Just go to your local ABC store and ask for Oxford Oaks. Demand, demand Demand Oaks. it, Oaks. and you'll get it. Oaks. Now the other thing that I would like to mention though is unlike ABC stores that are closed on Sundays, we are actually open for bottle sales on Sundays directly from the distillery. Aha. I did not know that. I did not. Yeah. There um, used to be a limitation on the number of bottles that you could buy in a distillery. At first, it was zero bottles, and then you could buy one bottle per year per person. The distillery had to keep very accurate records about who was buying bottles, ages, locations, the, that sort of things. Now, it then went to two bottles per person per year, but a new bill was passed in 2021 that allowed distilleries the same latitude as breweries where we could sell whatever product somebody wanted to them. Now, you have to be careful because there's a limit you can carry in your car at one time if you're an individual. Uh, we've never exceeded that limit. I don't expect to exceed that limit. We also have the ability to provide product to people out of state by mail. We can't do it in state. So if you're in North Carolina, you can't order product from us to be delivered to you. But if you're out of state, we can deliver it. And that is, is gonna open up some, some opportunity for us, I think. Now, what is the best way to go about doing that? Is it request by mail or website, or is it available now? So we're building that out now. So okay. we're, we're, we're working on, uh, so we have internal distribution in North Carolina. We have, obviously, all of our products that are for sale are for sale inside the distillery as well. So you can come here during normal hours, go to ask your server when you check out, or go to the bar, and you can purchase those bottles. Um, by probably the end of the first quarter, we'll have online sales set up. And to Paul's point, those are for... Uh, direct-to-consumer purchases for folks who don't live in North Carolina. Um, they do have to live in a state that's got sort of a reciprocal agreement with North Carolina, uh, but that's a lot of them. So uh, there's, there's you know, fewer than not. Um, and then we will also be able to offer wholesale to out-of-state through another site 
um, that will allow us to put our products in, say, bars and restaurants in Florida or some, somewhere like that. So right. uh, just trying to make it more convenient for people. Um, every time we get a product approved, it gets listed with the North Carolina ABC. And some of those products are stored in their warehouse for people to purchase and bring into the ABC stores. And then some of those just stay on special order, especially products that we're not going to run a lot of. Um, but SKUs get created, and, and all of those products that we create will be available here. Um, sometimes we're selling, like the black pepper vodka is currently on a special order. So if a, a local ABC store wants it or a, a restaurant wants it, say in Durham, they have to request it via special order. So there's a process there of just getting products sort of in the system. but. Um, the system really wants us to prove to them that there's demand. At the end of the day, the ABC system is is a retailer, right? And their job is to make money. And right. so, if if you've got a product that just sits on their shelves, that's not ideal. Yeah. Um, but they do, um, as Paul pointed out earlier, there's been a lot of work to sort of uh, level the playing field for distilleries, treat them more like rest, uh, breweries and wineries as it relates to festivals and you know selling uh, directly to the public. So. I think that you know, as as we go through those those changes, will continue to occur. The ABC system will adapt and grow as as part of you know the growth of distilleries in the state. They'll have to. Thank you for mentioning that because that's where I was about to go. Is Paul? You mentioned that okay when you first had the dream of this place and the idea and the plan um, two decades ago that there were no distillers in the state of North Carolina, and so. We find ourselves in the midst of a, a cultural change that a is taking change. place. Yes, yeah, sea change with regards to attitudes. Um, I, you know, I think there. I don't know if there's still any dry counties in North Carolina. There are. There, is there one. are. Okay. There is one. <laughs> okay. Yes, these you guys know. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, what has it been like? Okay, you know, being, uh, you know, being in this business, um, where you know, in our lifetimes. You know, uh, it was only our, certain of kinds our, of people that did this sort of thing. Some of our lifetimes are longer than others. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think, I, you know, what I find interesting is that when Paul first had this idea that there were no distilleries in North Carolina, yeah. which was how long ago now, Paul? 18 years. <clears throat> so in 18 years, we now have 80, 80 distilleries in North Carolina. That's a big change. That's a big a change. big change. We also have a North Carolina Distillers Guild lobbying at the state level for changes within our industry yeah it's a there's a lot of changes happening here if you think about so. you know the option and, and it's still that way right distilling alcohol if you compare it to like distilling beer it is an industrial application right so you're distilling a flammable product essentially so there's a lot of um safety considerations that go along with it so when you bring that it, it really wants to be like you know, out by Revlon or somewhere on the loop road all by itself in case something bad happens. And that's if you do it on scale. So what we've right. done downtown in these micro distilleries is we've scaled back the production size because it's got to fit in one of these buildings yes. and because of the risk that it presents to the public and the adjacent properties. So a lot of that, you know, has been considered. The building code has had to be adjusted, updated to make sure that there's, this is a combined use of an assembly space that is uh, at least in the building code called assembly space which is what a restaurant is and then you've got a, basically a factory use in the same building and it's similar to the brewery but they're in a different factory classification because our product is flammable so there's restrictions on what we can store how much right. product can stay in the building that box that goes around the distillery is a fire rated box yep. so that it can contain itself there's sprinkler 
systems throughout the building. So there's a lot of an added cost that goes into a project like this in order to bring it into a town like this. Right. But it takes advantage of being part of a community, a network of downtown retail businesses that, to your point, couldn't have happened mm. you know, even a decade ago because just so many of the systems hadn't been put in place to accommodate it. Right. Right. When we talk about systems, we talk about the pump for the sprinklers and for the fire department was $60,000 just by itself. Then we had installation and the fireproofing that goes on. If you look at this building and you look at the windows, you can see that there is a great deal of space between the actual inside wall and the window itself. The building is 100% brick exterior, meaning that the walls at the base are 26 inches wide, all brick and mortar. So it's in, in, its, in and of itself, it is a fireproof space. Right. It could burn all the way to the ceiling, but it probably won't transfer to another building because there's so much uh, inflammable material between the buildings. So it's a very safe building to start with, and then we have to come inside and then fireproof that factory part, that distillery part, because ethanol and methanol are incredibly flammable, as is uh, grain dust. It will explode uh, if there's enough of it and you have a spark. Right. And you, you're familiar with that? Yes. Uh, so there, there are lots of things that have to be taken into consideration that most people don't think about. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Again, when you're getting that bottle off the shelf in the store, you know, know that a lot of love and preparation went into providing it and making it for you. Um, How has it been, you know, uh, again, along these lines to say, okay, there, you know, amid the cultural change, um, you know, what's been the receptivity to Oxford Oaks here in the town of Oxford? There has been a community outpouring of support for the distillery and also the restaurant that has frankly surprised me a little bit. Hmm. I, I did not anticipate that. I thought it was going to be a huge battle. A lot of the groundwork was laid uh, by Pierre and other people and Mara and Paul Jr. Um, the, the rezoning of downtown was a little difficult for me, uh, but we started with the brewery first. It was interesting because we had brewery and craft distillery in the first zoning request, and uh, the zoning uh, chair requested that we take the distillery out. He said it would be easier to get the brewery passed if we took the distillery out. So when we came back with a request to um, uh, endorse that zoning to a, a craft distillery, one of the members of the board asked me, so, well, why didn't you do this to start with? And I said, well, I did, but the chair of the zoning board asked me to take it out because it was going to be easier. He said, oh, okay, you know. Right. And I think, you know, Matthew wasn't here as we, you know, and I, I wasn't here at the very beginning of, of, of that lift, but there has been a, you know, in particular as we, we occupy a space, and you, I know we're turned this way, but if you turn that way, there's a church right there, and there's a church behind us. And you know, part of what makes downtown Oxford interesting is that it's really bracketed by neighborhoods and churches, and then you've got this 
interesting downtown that sort of surround, you know, fills in the, those gaps. Yeah. We have, you know, when, when I got involved in downtown Oxford in um, 2017 and, um, you know, had the bottle shop now going strong at the hub with, with the brewery coming in, all of these incremental steps that were, you know, all, all of them focused, uh, you know, around alcohol and some element, the brunch bill. Um, we look at the, um, you know, open container for being able to walk outside in the social district. A lot of these were met with sort of immediate resistance, right? That, and there's lots of stories that go along with why people would resist that. And, and there are right. certainly, you know, horrible stories about what, what these, you know, alcohol and other, other substances have done to families. And, and there's challenges that come with all of it, right? And right. I think for us to focus on the, the, the positive side, the growth opportunities, um, this is a, a downtown that's going through a transition that a lot of downtowns in North Carolina have gone through across the country. But as you know, large retail exited the downtowns, which was sort of the rise of Walmart, which we have one, uh, the rise of Amazon. I mean, Amazon didn't exist 20 years ago. It wasn't there. I mean, you tell yeah. you tell kids nowadays that you were alive before Google, and they think that you're like, you know, a century. <laughs> you're a dinosaur. You're a dinosaur. But you know, there and some of us were alive before TV. Fair enough. Fair enough. Or the, the dial-up internet. But you know, Paul the, is speaking for himself. Of course, of course. <laughs> You've got mail. <laughs> but if you look at the sort of the makeup of downtowns, and you look at the f- pictures from the 50s and 60s in these rural towns, you see uh, towns that were were self-supported, right? They had, if you needed clothes or shoes or a movie or something to eat, like you bought it in your town, and if, assuming that you had a you know a sizable enough town, and that's what 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 was happening in Oxford, but. As that move away, in particular of retail, because of these other people occupying the space, everything about these downtowns has been, there's been a resurgence around something, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's cultural art. Sometimes it's, you know, food and beverage. Sometimes it's a, a, an industry that moves into your downtown. And for us, I think it's clearly been, you know, food and beverage. And a lot of those involve alcohol. It's just inherent to sort of the way it works. I think what's been the key for me at viewing places like the brewery, the distillery is that there's obviously a significant element of that. Like you go to the brewery, look through the glass, that's where they make the, the beer. But if you want to bring your kids out for a meal or go sit at the picnic tables or bring your dog, like that's fine. And so I think that's that weird dynamic between, um, sort of this, I'll say European model where like alcohol is just part of your life and it's not necessarily like held off to the side as a restricted, you know, thing. And it's just, it's just part of life. And I feel like it's handled more responsibly because of that. And so I'm not necessarily saying we need to be putting alcohol in front of all of our children's faces to deal with, but but there's an opportunity to say it's it doesn't have to have a negative context to it. Yeah. It can be part of the experience. If you want to come in here and eat lunch and you're a police officer and you're on duty, that's fine. We have yeah. tea and water and all the other things to go with it. So it's just an enhancement to the experience, I think. And, and I, I think our downtown particularly has benefited from um, a, a concentration on food and beverage. And we've attracted in a lot of work talent because of it, servers, um, chefs. Like we have a great group of talent in downtown Oxford, but we've also attracted a lot of visitors. Uh, we have regulars in our restaurant that are driving here from Cary and Raleigh and Chapel mm-hmm. Hill and Clarksville because this is a wonderful place to eat dinner. So I think those things are working for downtown Oxford. Most folks aren't gonna travel that far park out front, get back in their cars and go home. They're going to explore what's right. going on down here. So I think it's, it's been a benefit to, to downtown to have these businesses. I think Adam can remember when I moved here in 2001, 
I think there were a dozen empty storefronts in Oxford. How many are there now, Pierre? Maybe a couple. I know one is because the building's basically been condemned, uh, but I don't, I don't know of any others. So there's been a, a sea change here, uh, probably an attitude more than anything else about how things are perceived and, and um, again, the community support has been absolutely amazing. Uh, they want to see businesses grow and succeed. When we, when we look at the future, what, what do we see as a group? And we see a town that has stayed stagnant for 50 years. There's been no growth in Oxford, but we see a huge increase. Uh, we've got, if my understanding is correct, we've got 4,000 homes that have new homes to be built have been approved in Oxford and the extended uh, territorial jurisdiction. That's gonna double the size of this community. We need to be ready for that, and I think we are. I think not only those housing projects in downtown Oxford proper, but even here in Granville County alone, we've got several, you know, over 5,000 home developments going in, in our general area. This area here in Oxford specifically is going to change exponentially over the next 10 years. There is an influx of people, outsiders from North Carolina that are coming here. Um, and, and when people move to places like this, they expect certain infrastructures. Food, restaurant, drink, very, very important part of that base infrastructure. So I'm, I'm happy that we are positioning and in a position to be in a very great place as this growth occurs in our county so you guys have just said so many things that uh, um, have got me thinking just uh, Oxford as a destination for people to come visit um, hang out um, Oxford as a destination to live in um, it being a place where it is livable for you know both uh, in terms of you know, the, uh, the quality of life, um, cost of living here in this place. Absolutely incredible. Yes, you know, Absolutely. that um, don't know what has happened in real estate in this country over the last several years, but uh, there's a lot of people just getting priced out in, mm -hmm. in, in places. Um, Oxford still being a place that is affordable for most everybody. Oxford is still available for the American dream. Yes. 100%. Yes. Yes, Pierre. I wanted to to uh, just um, you know to to add something that you said uh, about um, you know alcohol attitudes and uh, kind of the European model. Um, it seems that if you take away the forbidden fruit element uh, that surrounded alcohol, that it was the forbidden fruit. We were giving it power. And so therefore, if you were a kid, it's like, well, you can't have this. Well, <laughs> of course we wanted it. Um, and if you take away and, you know, don't give it that power um, and we get socialized, you know, from early on to say, okay, this is good. Um, and to understand and to be able to respect, well, this is the reality of alcohol. Um, it can be a real joy. 
I feel comfortable in saying that as somebody who um, stands in front of a congregation every Sunday because uh, one of the things that I do is to say, um, and then he took the cup. <laughs> and there is, there's wine right at the very heart of you know, Christian worship. And so it's like, okay, if this is forbidden fruit, what are we doing with it with this? Um, anyways, Adam, next question. When I was going I was just going to oh, say, ahead. just sure. it, and it, it doesn't marginalize the the sort of the negative pieces, right? So, you know, in excess alcohol is a negative. In excess, lots of things are mm -hmm. negatives, and I think so. Not to normalize drunken behaviors or disorderly, you know, conduct or destruction of families through, you know abuse of anything, yeah. right? But this, to your point, is, you know, prohibition at its core just incited all kinds of uh, creativity right. in the public. And so, <laughs> especially here, I mean, we're sitting at the, the heart of NASCAR country, right? This entire region was the, where the genesis of all of that came from, right? It built a, a multi-billion dollar sport industry around bootlegging liquor. Right. So, I mean, I guess that's that came out of it. but. I think that's the biggest part for me is is if you can teach kids, teach young adults that you know you you keep it away from them. They go to college and just you know they're gonna they're gonna figure it out on their own. Or you teach them how to be responsible, not just about alcohol, about and at home and at home. Yeah. Any of under your sort of supervision. And I think that there's we miss if we think that the majority of people are not going to find an exposure at some point right. and we don't we just sort of say well I'm just not going to deal with it I think if you or we don't deal with it somebody is going to end up having to deal with it so yeah. we have not seen you know in particular the social district um, the kinds of just chaotic behaviors that were you know that people were touting as the, as the, the, the possible downside of, of doing right. any of that and I think that was I think once you escape the fear of doing those things and you say, not only am I going to advocate for this, but I'm going to be responsible for helping make sure that it's administered in a reasonable way so that it doesn't become a problem. Um, and that's exactly what we've done here. And I think, you know, we've got one of our, I think our downtown director is speaking at a conference coming up specifically about the implementation of the social district and how it impacted um, downtown, if it really had any impact at all. Um, I just think it's it's interesting to see the conversation about those things shift a year later and you know with the distillery online and the brewery online like you just don't see that you don't yeah. see people i think the, the folks that are going to be walking around outside with a with a glass of wine are typically just not the troublemakers <laughs> right right <laughs> they're here to socialize and, and be part of something <clears throat> special exactly and, and i grew up even though i started making liquor beer wine at an early age i actually wasn't even allowed to drink I wasn't allowed to drink until I was much later in life. Yeah. So I always grew up with, you know, everything in moderation. But when it comes to alcohol, you know, we obviously have federal and local laws that we have to follow. We yeah. follow them stringently. Yes. And um, I've always been very well aware of what alcohol can do at a negative point to people and or families. Yes. So everything in moderation is kind of the way I grew up. Let's look at the history of this. We had a rebellion in the United States in 1794. The Whiskey Rebellion. Called, yes, the Whiskey Rebellion or the Regulator Rebellion. Yeah. Because the government decided to tax alcohol. And from there, it just went into, as Pierre said earlier, the temperance movement. 
And in the South, a lot of ministers stood at the pulpit and endorsed that. Well, once you say something from the pulpit, you can't take that back. It's very difficult. <laughs> oh, <talk>. no. Yes. <laughs> and let's just leave it at that. So, so once you guys open the doors here, what has, been your, what has surprised you most about either customers' reactions or about you know, the way uh, people have received things or just any everyday circumstance? What has surprised you most about Oxford Oaks Distillery? I think people are actually blown away by the quality of what we produce here, both in liquors as well as in food and the service that they receive. There's nothing like this in this part of North Carolina. We, we stand alone. We really do. Yeah, I think for me that that has been the interesting part, and I don't I don't know that everybody always knows what to expect when they walk in, so seeing them sort of take the space in, and I mean, unless you were I guess a State Farm customer in the last decade and a half, like you probably never would have even come in the building, but to be able to see how different it is if you did um, that we've activated the second floor, really just given this building sort of a new purpose, um, understanding that it was Baird Hardware, and then paying you know homage where we can to the history. Um, what's really intriguing is the folks that come here from like out of town that are, and I'll pick on the folks that drive from like Cary and places like that, that drive past, you know, WRAL's 15 best steakhouses, all 15 of them, they pass them on the way here. Mm. And uh, ideally we get on that list right at some point, but, um, you know, to basically bypass all of that, to come here and see us, like that's an honor for us. And I think it's a testament to what we've been able to accomplish in an incredibly short amount of time. And so we were going over our mission the other day and it says um, to be known as one of the region's top restaurants. And I think that we have, we have achieved sort of top restaurant status. And now we're gonna focus hard on the known part. We wanna get that word out there so that, you know, we have a product we're proud of and want other folks to be able to experience. And we just need to get that word out so people do, you know, however they find us, they come along. Um, and then it's, all of that is a win for Oxford. Right. right. Again, people don't drive here 45 minutes an hour to just grab dinner, get back in the car and go home. We've got right. an ice cream shop across the street. We've got a great bakery over here. We've got the brewery, retail, boutique shops. Like it's it's everything that you could do to you know, spend an afternoon or a Saturday here. I think it's it's a win for everybody. Right. Right. Just curious. Do you get so is. Is Carrie the farthest you know of anybody? Is there any like record keepers you have? <laughs> or, like, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. Just California. Wow. Yeah. That's very cool. The, the owner of, um, oh gosh, just slips. The Hooters mm -hmm. has eaten dinner here. Mm -hmm. The original Hooters? The yeah. original Hooters. Oh, He's cool. eaten dinner here with his wife and had nothing but great things to say. He said, here are some things that if it were me, I would change which was great information for us. Yeah, yeah definitely. But I've, but, heard, I've heard people from as far as uh, in-state, uh, Wilmington, hmm. uh, Cherokee, uh, all the furthest counties have made okay. a visit here just for our food and liquor. I don't think you can get much further away than Cherokee, maybe Murphy. Uh, <laughs> maybe, right? maybe. And we do see, yeah, yeah Cherokee, the town, right? Yeah. No, um, we've got folks that you know have been generous enough to leave us really kind reviews online yeah. right our, our review profile although not you know there's not thousands of them there's hundreds of them yeah our review profiles are as good or better than any restaurant in raleigh or durham just they compete and so when people look at those some some folks use google some folks use yelp some folks use 
Facebook, whatever they use to sort of decide if they're going to stop. We've had folks just come off the highway and say, oh, we were on our way back from Richmond to RDU to catch a flight wherever. And we looked on Yelp and we saw there's, there's only one five-star restaurant in the region and it's you. So we pulled off the highway, came downtown Oxford and got a bite to eat and it was, it was unbelievable. Hmm. So I think you expect some hometown love for your concept and people come and you know we saw that with the brewery of course and they you know all your ratings for your beers are outstanding because they love you yeah right and they want to support you and that's great and then that happens to everybody and then all of a sudden as you get more and more um you get a wider net cast your reviews tend to just they go down and there's and i think that's okay and then they settle out somewhere so then a few years in you've got a you know 4.25 as a brewery like you're you're ecstatic yeah um you know we're still sitting nine months in with you know 4.8s and five star you know reviews that means something because you are now beyond just the sort of your you know your uh, your biggest fans right and now you've got these folks that have no attachment to your product and you know aren't really vested in whether or not you succeed they're literally coming off the highway and you're getting reviews like that those feel real good because you know those are genuine but there's a lot of work that goes on behind a lot of work yeah and, and I'll use an example of the sensation rating here. We've had nothing but 100s. We had one nine, one, no, one, we had 199.5. 199.5. <laughs> but you, you, that doesn't just happen. It doesn't. We've, we've got a team um, in, in this facility that understands how important it is, and they make sure that it happens. We take pride. We we take pride in everything that we do and produce here, absolute one hundred percent. That is truly beyond incredible to hear. And I got to say, um, personally, I really enjoyed. I think it was a sixty-day age ribeye I had one time. Just one of the best things I've ever had. Honestly, I mean, we all agree. Yeah, we, we, and we we actually yeah. eat here ourselves, and yep. we are blown away every we single were, we time. We were talking about that this morning. So, and it's interesting that the founders group, we pay full price for everything. That was a decision that we made very early on. So if you come to dinner here and you eat with one of the founders and they pick up the tab, they picked up the tab at full price. Mm-hmm. And it's worth it. Go ahead. I have a question that I put on here that I'm very curious about. Have you, have you noticed that since you've been started the distillery and everything, they use the term distill more? or the, any jargon or any kind of commonplace uh, vocabulary. Um, because you know, when, when Matthew was sort of talking earlier about distilled water, I honestly never took the time to even think about what is distilled water <laughs> in comparison to, to distilled like the spirits and such. Right. So. In fact, uh, we, we witnessed it here that uh, Matthew was describing a process and Paul interjected the word distill. Because <laughs> he used fermenter. <laughs> So we needed to put the still in there. So picking off the yeah. picking off the low fruit. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, you know, and probably to answer your question, I mean, for them and Matt in particular, like distilling is in his blood, and so probably he he grew up with all all of the words that he you know that we're learning now. And I can tell you from my perspective, and Paul had a, had done a lot more you know research and planning, and I won't say experimenting because that's illegal, but um, it is illegal. It is illegal. One of the things we ask when we go on the tour is you know who's familiar with the process and. We go through the first half, which is essentially, to Matt's point earlier, you're making beer. And so anybody ever, and you get a few hands and you get to the next step. It's like, this is the still and this is how this works. Has anybody ever, never mind, it's illegal. You should never do this at home. So <laughs> it's, um, that part is interesting. But for me, it's been a, an entirely new language. Um, I learned the beer language 
five years ago or so, and so that's certainly helped. Um, but all the equipment is unique. Um, even for Matthew, this equipment that we purchased is unique. It's on a different scale than what he's used to doing. Um, it's funny because as we've made the equipment sort of more sophisticated, added all this electronics, most of this was done in the woods you know, on a, on a, on a campfire. Right. And so as we've made this process more complicated <laughs> in a lot of ways, he's like, can you just get rid of that stuff and just put, <laughs> just put hand valves on it? That's literally all I need. Does that tell you where he used to be? Yeah, exactly. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I've distilled on, you know, stills that were as large as 3,500 gallons. And, you know, we're, we're down to a less than the 300 gallons still now. And there's a big difference when you, go smaller versus going smaller to going larger difference each way just different differences just different yeah um but you know absolutely love the equipment that we have here is exactly what we need to produce some of the most you know the best premium product available uh like i said earlier we don't release anything that i don't agree with and that isn't a premium product here it's important for us to make sure that Matthew has artistic license to do what he thinks is the best, right? Well, there's not, you know, there's a science to it. You know, I, I do have a science background. Uh, I do have a master's degree in science. And we, you know, if you can't replicate it, you know, that's, that's not science. Um, but also the ability to control every aspect of the process is what makes a premium liquor, honestly. Being able to pay attention. And the founders here have literally given me that. They give me the ability to make the best product that I possibly can. Um, and that's, to me, an incredible gift, honestly. So. I am. I love what I do. Uh, I hope it shows in the quality of our product here, and um, there's a little bit of love in, in in every single bottle for sure. And like I said, there there is a science to it. It's not a rocket science necessarily, but there's definitive science to it. And so, not done right will produce a a, a quality that you're not looking for, that I'm not looking for, uh, in a in a spirit specifically. Um, but in addition to the science aspect of it, yeah, there is an art to it. Uh, it. It's one thing being able to be able to paint on a canvas. It's another thing to be able to paint well on a canvas. And that's yes. the way I look at spirits. Uh, it's one thing to be able to produce a liquor, but it's another thing to be able to produce a top quality premium liquor. Um, and that's what I strive to do in every single batch that I make. A couple more questions for you guys. Uh, first one is, where do you see Oxford Oaks Distillery in three to five years? Ooh, I'll take that one. Profitable. Making money. Okay. All right. Okay. Of course, we're we're, we're all uh, hoping and anticipating that. Um, uh, but what do you envisage? You know, in terms of, you know, is it? Uh, you know, top shelf and even higher shelf or more products, um, ex, you know, um, bigger vats? <laughs> I think that, uh, first of all, our first bottle and bond 
whiskey will be coming offline. In other words, be coming out of the barrels. And I'm incredibly excited about that. Bottle and bond is a very precise process. It's a very structured process. It's a very costly process it's as well. It's a very costly process. So it's very important that we get it right the first time. Mm -hmm. and, I, and, and we are. We're going to get it right. Um, but to Pierre's comment, it, this is where the profit will start for us. Putting whiskey aside, it's wonderful. But now you've got millions of dollars in inventory that yeah. you're not able to sell. So until we can start producing this two-year-old stuff and then this four-year, because Bottle and Bond has got to be in a bonded warehouse for at least four years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it has to be bottled at 100 proof. So it's very precise. And the other thing is, is not only are we sitting all this on all this inventory as it's aging, but it's aging in barrels. Barrels leak. Barrels evaporate, or, or the liquid in those barrels evaporates over time. Yeah. So on a brand new American oak barrel, most people don't realize that we lose close to 10% of that product in the very first year sitting mm. in that barrel. Then we lose anywhere from 3 to 5% additional product each year from that particular barrel. So when people are drinking their 20, 30 year old scotches and wondering why am I paying so much for this particular bottle yes. <laughs> that's exactly why we're making up for that angel share that is evaporating right. we call it the angel share so angels uh, have had a good time that's exactly exactly but that's why yeah you look at like Pappy's 23 year old stuff I mean there's probably in a 53 gallon barrel man there's probably 10 10 or 15 gallons yeah, left in there really it's been sitting there for yeah. 23 years in the basement at you know um Buffalo Trace. Yeah, that's why it's expensive. Um, so I, I think Paul's right. We've in three to five years, we'll, our barrel program will be producing. Uh, we hope to have a lot of um, you know our core products still rolling out with like lots of metals hanging off from them. Uh, we'd like to see Matthew back on television. Right. Um, there's you know, and, and he has some commitments to do that now. But you know, really getting um, making our mark, and we're doing. You know, we were talking earlier about our sales team and you know distilleries aren't profitable for five to seven years and because it takes a lot unless you have george clooney or somebody like just right making you profitable day one but you don't just get the opportunity to just go you know be the preferred vodka of every single organization in the country you know we looked at um tito's was the most popular vodka last year not probably not a big surprise um and they saw what was the number i told you it was like 12 million 12 million cases, cases they sold last year yeah. Um, that takes a lot of work yeah. and it takes a lot of investment in marketing and branding and you got to produce a quality product. Um, we think that that's not our trajectory. You know, we want to be known as a, as a quality regional brand. There's other examples in the area that people that have done that where you'll recognize a, you walk in somewhere, you see conniption gin and you know yes. that conniption came from Durham and, and that's their story, right? So we'd like yeah. to have a, I'll say a flagship type product and we don't, nobody gets to choose what their flagship product is so right. you know as we figure that out and then really go hard after those markets where it makes sense for us to participate but if we're still here in three to five years you know enjoying the success that we're having now developing you know other members of the team into like leadership roles and you know we have a our payroll staff right now is something like 40 40 something people on payroll yeah. and so it is a these are huge economic engines for communities yeah. and folks from the, I'll say the folks that help us keep the building clean, you know, to the executive chef and the master distiller, there's a huge range of folks that participate in projects like this. So 
Uh, we just want to be an anchor for downtown Oxford, and I think if we're still doing that in a meaningful way in three to five years, then we're all going to be happy campers. That'd be brilliant. Did you have another question? Yes, I do. Uh, how do you guys see uh, Oxford changing in the next five years? We kind of hinted around it earlier about the development and the growth and the just those, as, as Paul said, the sea change of everything in downtown Oxford and just the Oxford in general. I think that there's, a, there's going to be some truth to the growth. We haven't seen growth here since I've been here. Mm -hmm. And I think if I look back, and I have looked back at uh, population levels in Oxford, they have stayed about the same for the last 70 years. Yeah, about a tenth of a percent growth. Yeah. Right. Um, I see Oxford growing, and I think that we are in the right time and the right place to help with that. I also see um, that most of the time when people make predictions, they're wrong, because I don't know about you, you guys, but my crystal ball broke a few years ago. Mm -hmm. I took it to the shop. They didn't have parts. They said they're on order. On order. <laughs> yeah. But they don't yeah. anticipate getting them in any time in the next 100 years. So the crystal balls are all broken. And I think that everything that is projected needs to be taken with a grain of salt. I have no doubt that Oxford will grow in the next five to 10 years. Hopefully, we can have that growth be the kind of growth that we all want. When I moved here, two lights at a traffic signal was a traffic jam. And I think in the future it will be 10 cars at mm -hmm. light. So I do think that, that we, are, we are in for a change. And, and I, will, I have told my team so many times, change is the only constant in the entire world. Mm -hmm. So we need to be ready for change and be willing to change and I think if we are ready and willing, that we're going to be successful. Yeah, I think when you, when you put the, the growth, the history of growth in Oxford in perspective, and you talk about like a tenth of a percent per year for however long, if you look back, so the population of Oxford, and there'll be a census coming up, but it's, we, it's somewhere in the 9,000-ish yeah. range. So when it was 4,500, you got to go back 70 years. So it took 70 years roughly for the population to double. Yeah. And it will happen again in less than 10. Yeah. So all of the things that all the systems, all the infrastructure, human infrastructure and physical infrastructure that was in place that allowed for growth of essentially, you know, 100 percent growth in 70 years. We need to make sure that we've got the infrastructure in place to allow that growth to happen again in 10 years, because to Paul's point, it will happen right one way or the other. Um, farmland will be sold, housing developments will get built, Interstate 85 is there, the exits are constructed. So if we want to be part of the discussion, then we have to be willing to change, talk about change. Um, we've got an amazing footprint of downtown. Um, the buildings are in really good shape. The, like the footprint is established. It's, it's bordered by neighborhoods and churches. and so. You know, there's not an old railroad yard or something. That's right. that's. There's not old industrial buildings at the edge of one corner of downtown. Like it's pretty well cornered in. And so, yeah. I think the the future of downtown needs to continue to be explored and planned and just be proactive in terms of what we want it to be. 
Um, but Oxford as a whole, because sometimes we just focus really like a lot on downtown. Oxford is a, is a pretty big piece of geography. I mean, it stretches clear down to the you know, Tar River and goes up almost you know, close to the Virginia border, mm-hmm. some of these little slivers of Oxford. So when we're talking about Oxford, it's all of that. And what we're trying to do is not only participate in business, but participate in planning. And so we're at the meetings, we volunteer on committees, um, the, the small groups, that the restaurant group, the retail groups, the downtown businesses as a whole that come together to participate and you know, have conversations with the city about what we see and what we want there's so many good examples right around us of other towns that have sort of gone through this kind of growth. Right. And some are really great examples and some are, re- are really examples of what we don't want to be. We won't mention any other towns. <laughs> don't need to. Don't need to. Because we'll let you imagine. <laughs> honestly, there are people who will look at the same towns and one person is saying all these things that they don't like about it and another person saying all the things they do like about it. Yeah. But I think the important part is to have a conversation and participate. And so for as many people that have opinions about all of that, we just encourage people to come and have discussions. Oxford's currently discussing, um, you know, there's there's a development ordinance that was passed last year. Uh, there's comprehensive um, uh, plan developments for land development uses, how things are zoned and where those zoning um, occur. There's currently a, a strategy for branding and marketing for all of Oxford. What does Oxford want to be? And I. When I'm asked that question a lot, like, okay, we sort of know how we got here, but what happens next? So what's really interesting about right now is that that conversation is happening. And I think not very often in life do you get to be right in the middle when a town, when an area is is at that point where you're going to look back and say, there's the spot right there in time where yeah. the future mm-hmm. of the town was discussed and determined. That is actually happening right now. Mm-hmm. And so everyone should participate. Everyone should be talking to their commissioners. Um, talking to their business owners about what they want to see. And I think 10 years from now, we're going to look back with twice the population of Oxford and looking at this moment and saying, that was the point in time where we decided whatever was going to happen and look at what look at what has been done. Right. It's interesting because you can read history or you can create history. That's true. kind of your choice. True. Absolutely true. We're seeing a lot of folks who, you know, I think a lot of downtowns were built this way. A couple of families, large, owned everything. Yeah. um, Or large swaths of it. And there's still some of that in Oxford. But if you look at the businesses that are, that are, that are coming out now, you look at, say, in the last five years, new businesses and new building owners. These are individuals or I won't say they're new families to Oxford, but they're new families to downtown Oxford. And right. groups of individuals. And groups oh, of individuals yeah. who have, like this project, have come together and said, we want to build something. Yeah. These are unique in that they're different business groups, but they're also different people. Um, and in a lot of cases, this is their livelihood, right? It's not just a building you inherited that you put a business in, and if it doesn't do well, that's okay. Um, their entire livelihoods are tied to mm-hmm. the success of their businesses. And I think that's why people are really passionate about business in downtown Oxford, right? Because their livelihood is tied to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also really cool to see just all of these individual entrepreneurs collectively contributing. You know, when we built this project, there was, I know we're not talking about the restaurant today, but the discussion was, well, what do we want to have for a restaurant? And we honestly looked around and, and took an inventory of what was here and said, there's an upscale lane that's open. Yeah. It doesn't tread on anybody else. It doesn't interfere with anything else. That's our lane. Let's do it. And I think the idea that what is good for um, us is good for Oxford 
there's there's sort of a shared ideal in Oxford that that's true, and the businesses are more working together than trying to you know stand on each other's heads to to breathe. Right. I think back to the question about what do we foresee in the next three to five to ten years. I find it interesting. There's a small town close to Raleigh. There was a gentleman who was at the commissioner's meeting, and the question was posed, what are our plans to grow? And one of the commissioners said, we don't want to grow. And the gentleman who was there said, it's not a matter of whether you want to grow. We're going to grow. But we can grow without planning, or we can grow with planning. And I think Oxford is unique in that it anticipates this growth and welcomes it, but not all communities do that. Not all communities do that, but one of the things that really attracted me to Oxford when I was initially drawn into this particular project of the distillery slash restaurant, Verdigree and Oxford Oaks Distillery, was that everyone that I met involved with this product wasn't project wasn't uh, out as an individual. Everyone was rather altruistic about the community of Oxford. Hmm. So I'm not into this to make money. We're doing this for the betterment of the community. That was the overwhelming message that I took home when I was down here looking into this originally. Mm. Um, and that's really what excited me and attracted me to this, is that we're really doing something for the betterment of this community as it grows into something bigger. Change is coming. Change is definitively coming. There is no way around it. This town is going to double in size in the next 10 to 15 years. You want to be here as a business. Yes. And I think we're going to look back in 10 years and say, we made the right decision. We made the right decision not only for ourselves, but for the community of Oxford as well. Any other questions, Adam? I appreciate uh, what you've said just about uh, two things. Just one, uh, the town being adaptive. And two, that adaptivity also being closed with civic pride. Um, there's good ways to develop, good ways to grow. Um, there's other ways to grow where it's like, don't you have any pride in your town? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I am curious, uh, if you were to do this process over again of the distillery and everything else, uh, would you do anything differently or what have you learned or what would, if you were trying to coach somebody else in this whole process, would you say, do this, don't do that or? Peter. <laughs> Are you, now you're taking questions <laughs> off, the, off the back of the sheet here. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I mean, I, I think you learn something every single time. But yeah. If you um, don't, you, you're not very intelligent. Yeah. You're not doing something right. There were things, you know, this was the first project of its kind in Granville County. So us and the fire marshal and the building inspectors and the, you know, the city water and sewer folks, the treatment, everybody was sort of, working together to figure this out. We're doing it in the middle of an infrastructure upgrade where we've got new water mains and you know sewer lines being run in the streets. So I think there was a lot of things that from a timing standpoint would have been you know better. Um, but honestly, we engaged folks early, uh, the city included. Um, we went out on a nationwide search for a distiller six months before we needed one to be here. Um, because we understood the value of having that input. Mm -hmm. We hired our management team for the, for the restaurant, man, close to six months before we needed them. And so I think that was from lessons learned from other projects that, 
you know, as much as I have an idea of what a kitchen should look like and how it should be built out, the person who works in there every day has a much better opinion of that. Right. But it does cost money to bring these folks on. And yeah. um, I think we probably, you know, underestimated a bit of the supply chain. There was, you know, we're six months later than we wanted to be on the distillery side just because it's just taking us time to get there. Yeah, the COVID. The, the COVID. The, the yes. COVID. The, the COVID. I remember, an issue. remember the COVID. That big hiccup. Yeah. <laughs> But we're on the right side of it now. Um, no, I don't think if we, if you said, you know, rewind three years, you got a chance to get out of jail free, would you not do it? I think we would do it again. Right. Um, I think we would optimize a few things. But yeah. no, I think overall we've got an incredible project. We've got an incredible project team. We've got a product here that we're, you know, really proud of, that Oxford can be really proud of. Um, so no, I, I'm, I'm happy with sort of where we landed if on this you, thing. If you think about timing, I don't think we would have the water pressure here to put a distillery in before the water pipes had been changed out. Hmm. So it was important that that happened. We couldn't right. have done it two years earlier. However, it was a, it made it dysfunctional in here for a while. So there, the timing, I've heard this saying, you're where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there. Hmm. So I think it was the right timing for us to do it, have done it earlier, probably would have been a lot harder. It would have been a lot less expensive. Definitely would have been less expensive. Yeah, we definitely built in the height of the commercial construction, you know, market pricing when, a, what was it, at the time a sheet of plywood was like $90. And, mm. you know, like, we need to temporarily board up the front of the building. I'm like, can't we just use a tarp or something? Like, <laughs> we need to figure out if we can repurpose that plywood somewhere else. But. Yeah, those were challenging times. And so, yeah, none of that was necessarily anticipated. So, but we made it through. Like, we have a really committed group of people who every time that, you know, the call went out to say, this is where we're at, it's what we need to do. Everybody said, you know, how can I help? So we're fortunate that way. Um, but before you leave, we'd love to take you to the back and show you the distillery space if you want to check that out. Would love to. Maybe, well, I'm, maybe I'm going to do a quick tasting. Ooh. We can arrange that as well. But it doesn't well. have to be on video. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be back for my share on February 1st. I'm doing dry January. Perfect. <laughs> I'm sorry for you. Really. Yeah. You got any non-alcoholic alcohol? <laughs> but no, we'll ta we can take you back there and, and let uh, Matt explain that process by uh, pointing. And um, that'd be awesome, I think, for people to just get a, get a okay. peek back there. One too. of the things awesome. that's been interesting to me in traveling around the country, I try to stop at a distillery every place I go. And the number of distilleries that have what they call white whiskey. Now, obviously, whiskey has to be aged, right? It, you can't have a whiskey that's a clear product because it's never been in a barrel. But they sell it as a white whiskey. We call it moonshine sometimes. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's called moonshine is because it's got cane sugar in it. We don't use cane sugar in ours. Uh, but it's going to be interesting because I think we're eventually going to put out a white whiskey that's something that just comes out of the still and it's really pretty good. <laughs> moonshine, moonshine was actually called Moonshine just from a historical standpoint. It was called Moonshine because, first of all, it was illegal. It was also untaxed. And people usually did it at night in the woods yeah. under the moonlight. And that's where the term Moonshine came from originally. Yeah. People found a way. They did. They always do. <laughs> yes, they, they always, always do. do. Yes, yeah. Okay, well, let us head back to the distillery. Sounds great. Hi, my name is Matthew McLean. I'm the master distiller for Oxford Oaks Distillery, and I'm here to explain how the distillery works and how you get your liquor from start. 
So we start off with grains. Grains come in bags. Bags are usually anywhere from 50 to 55 pounds. This particular grain happens to be barley grown on one of our founders' farm, Lark Farm. So that's owned by Peter Johnson. He dedicated 14 acres directly of his farm specifically for this barley. So it's a good, I've seen this barley grown, I've seen it harvested, I've seen it malted, and I take care of the grinding all myself as well. So it's to my exact specifications here at the distillery. We take this ground up grain and we move it over to this machine right here. This is called a mash ton. Okay, this mash ton actually has grain in it right now as we speak, it's hot to the touch. Um, we add hot water to that ground up grain. And what we're doing is we're converting the starches in the grain into sugars. Okay, that's called saccharification. Once the saccharification is done, I separate the grain from the water. It has a false bed in here so I can bring out the liquids and leave the grain in there. We transfer it over to the fermenters with these hoses. And that's exactly why you see the hoses hooked up the way they are right now. We are about to transfer the water in this tank over to one of our fermenters. These are called conical fermenters because of the cone at the bottom. Uh, basically, once I get my liquid over here, we cool it down, and then I add yeast. Anywhere from three days to a week later, I have anywhere from an 8% to a 12% beer. And this is a beer without the hops in it, okay? So the first step in making liquor is making a beer. Once that fermentation is done, again, I will transfer it in all these hoses all the way to the other side of the distillery to this big coffer machine. This is the actual still. The still is a pretty simple machine. It hasn't changed much in about a thousand years, honestly. A distiller from a thousand years ago would probably be able to recognize what we're doing here at the distillery today. This separates the water from the ethanol. So water boils at 212 degrees or 100 degrees Celsius. Alcohol, ethanol, boils at 173.3 degrees. So I find that sweet spot between 173 degrees and 212 degrees, and I separate all the congeners and fusel oils out first. These are the things that make you sick. These are the things that cause hangovers in, in alcohols congeners, fusel oils. So these are things like methanol, propanols, all the bad stuff in an alcohol that you wouldn't want to drink. We separate it out with this column right here, okay? Each one of these plates has a different level of poison that comes off of it at different temperatures. We control that. Then the condenser cools everything down again and recondenses it into a liquid form. This liquid form goes from the 8% alcohol that you saw in the fermenters to anywhere from 160 all the way up to 190 proof liquor coming out of here. This is called a parrot. This is literally where the alcohol comes out and we collect it at that point. After, depending on what the alcohol is, we'll add distilled water to it to proof it down to a drinking proof. So coming out of the still at 160 proof, we will temper it with distilled water down to 80 proof or whatever proof we choose to bottle it at. Everything that comes out of a still is clear. 
So even the whiskey you drink, that brown whiskey you find in bottles that you buy at your ABC store comes out clear from the still. The only way that it gets color to it is putting it over here in our barrels. And these are barrels of our Carolina whiskey aging as we speak. So this is a double barrel aged 116 proof. So this is entered at 116 proof into the cask. We will release it at that same strength. And that is basically how alcohol is made in Granville County at Oaks, Oxford Oaks Distillery. Thank you very much, Matthew. Hey, Adam, when he goes out, can you grab one of those? Um, or info at OxfordOaksDistillery.com um, for more information or just stop by and see us. It's a, it's a great spot downtown. There's plenty of parking on the side of the building. Um, so it's just a great spot to come down and, and check us out. Paul, Matthew, you have anything else you want to conclude with? Just thank you for coming and, and doing a podcast. I had to look up what a podcast was this morning. So, <laughs> uh, Thank you for coming and doing your podcast from the distillery. We really appreciate having you guys here. We look forward to seeing you and, and any of your listening audience in the future. Yeah, thank you guys very much for your time and everything and putting all this together. And like you said, Matthew, and doing it for the community. Obviously, you want to do it for yourself, make money. Those, those are all wonderful things. But the, the spirit of Oxford is truly here at Oxford Oaks. And to what Pierre said, I love following you guys on uh, Instagram and Facebook and seeing all the latest creations uh, culinarily and everything. So, Alan, anything for you? Just want to thank you guys for giving us the time, uh, the opportunity to, to interview you. And uh, here's to hoping that you listeners out there and you viewers will treat yourself to some of the best food and some